You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Road. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Coming up on the roundup, a BNR update in Legacy. Competitive modern tryouts with Crabvine, Hollow One, and Eldrazi Stompy. And picks of the week in Modern and Pioneer. That's all coming up on Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, and I am joined by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing family. He is Dan Shriver. Dan, the man, what's going on? I'm doing well, David. Good to see you. Yeah, it's nice to be the CEO of a family. The ultimate merger. <laughs> it's like the sort of Marxian uh, congruence of, uh, you know, ideology and <laughs> God. the personal... <laughs> I hate everything about this already. <laughs> what have we done? Somewhere uh, Michel Foucault is uh, super stoked. <laughs> uh, I was thinking of like, you know, it's a very evangelical thing. Among <laughs> like the man needs to take the lead in the household. Oh, the domineering. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway. You are in Texas. <laughs> it's true. No, it's, I feel the pressure. Austin's a little blue bubble and I feel the forces closing in all around me. And there's some pretty gnarly stuff happening down here. Some of the legislation they're advancing right now is uh, really scary stuff. Yeah, I can't uh, imagine you'll survive it, but I will then become the CEO. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> plotting in the back. <laughs> yeah. Iago to your uh, Othello. <laughs> <laughs> so, magic. Bit of a week, a little bit of news. I played a lot of magic this week, actually. A lot of magic. Yeah, we are going to get into your modern RCQ report. We are going to go over on the Friday show the results, the dramatic results of our new card of the month. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the BNR update, which happened just before we started recording. So before we get to any of that, we, of course, have to take care of a little housekeeping at the top. We want to give a big shout out to our newest patron, Matt D. Is it Matt Damon? Maybe. We don't know it isn't. <laughs> That's a little um, too vague. Let's let's say M. M. Dam 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 Damon B. Affleck. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just a reminder: if you enjoy the show, you you enjoy the podcast, uh, and you want to support us, the best way to do so is to go to Patreon.com/slash/FaithlessBrewing and and join at whatever level is is comfortable for you guys. Um, it does support the show. It's the best way to do so. You get Discord access, uh, lots of ideas flying around. Obviously, we just had the vote for the card of the month. Uh, lots of people advocating for their favorites. And then once the card is picked, of course, the uh, ideas, uh, the cup runneth over, right? So uh, just people trying a bunch of crazy stuff and, and arguing about it. And, you know, that's basically what magic is ultimately. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're here for. The arguments we all know and love. Now, you alluded, David, to a vote that just concluded last week. We have results. We can share those results because we're kicking off our next monthly project and we have a winner. 
in a hotly contested vote. Insert a drum roll. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. A suspenseful pause. Yes. So wherever you are, just take a deep, sharp intake of breath. We had 12 cards on the ballot. David and I went through them a couple weeks ago. When the votes were tallied, it was pretty close. I'll mention the top five, counting down the top five. So fourth and fifth place, each garnering 30% support. A tie between Gix, Yogmoth Praetor, and Radadrabic of Urborg. A couple of black legends here, but very different styles. Yeah, lots of interesting cards there. Um, you know, we've seen sometimes cards just not win, and then maybe they win the next time. So these might be sort of cards of future. I know, this was, I think, Gix's second top five finish in a row. So we'll see. There's definitely some love there. Always a bridesmaid kind of a situation. <laughs> Third place, surprisingly to me, with 33% support is All Will Be One, the titular Red Enchantment. And this got a surge of votes toward the second half of the week, perhaps because we started to see some successful 5-0 lists in Modern of all things, using this combination between All Will Be One and the Red One-Drop Quest uh, that just adds a counter whenever you deal damage. Quest for Pure Flame, is it? Quest for Pure Flame? That's the one, so you just need to have that quest in play. Slam your all will be one. Now all you have to do is, like, prick them with something. A seal of fire. You, have to, you do have to deal one damage. Well, the thing that I love that people were iterating on is you can just play a land that comes into play with a counter. Like, people would have counter magic up, and once that's established, you just play a land that has a counter on it. It starts the chain. You don't even need to do damage to them with another spell or anything. Oh, that's so clever. I didn't even think of that. Okay. Or if you already have Fable in play ticking up, for instance, um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're able to resolve the one drop or the five drop, it doesn't matter if they draw a counterspell the next turn, like Fable goes to three, starts the chain, and bef- before it flips, etc. So. so it's not really a three-piece combo. It, it technically is three, but the third piece can come from so many sources. Yeah, exactly. So, so you don't need to have Seal of Fire in play. You don't even need to have a Lightning Bolt. Maybe you just tick up your land. Uh, blast zone, right? Maybe it's already in play, but you just add a counter to it, right? That's that's mostly on. Obviously, there's effects that can counter that, but they're exceedingly rare. Okay, nice. Well, we won't be hearing more from that this month because that took third place, but that's a very interesting card. The top two finishers, and this was a very close finish, both in the artifact space. Second place goes to Teething Wormlet with 36% support. Teething Wormlet is bit of an overlooked card i mean it came out last set i want to say brothers war yeah i believe so green one drop that cares about artifacts coming in we really don't think of green as being an artifact color i think that's part of what held it back you know it did show up in the odd hardened scales list but it hasn't really made an impact yet and it's priced to move for sure yeah, and Mono White has really abandoned the uh, one white-white enchantment that exiles permanents of two or less, which was, I think, just the bane of, obviously, Teething Wormlet and everything that triggers it. Uh, so that's super cool. I actually think that's that's kind of interesting. If, if you don't have, like, one card that just destroys you, then your one drop can actually be, like, worth something. The Wormlet also has infinite combo potential. Unfortunately, it would be an infinite life gain combo, which is like a little bit too tedious. It's just not enjoyable to execute that online. So it's possibly like an even better card in paper. Do you, I don't want to get too too deep into it, but 
Do you think if this did a plus one, plus one every time an artifact came into play, that it would just be too good? Yes. Okay. In modern or in standard or like in, in, in all formats? If the plus one, plus one did not get limited to once per turn, you could play yeah. the wormlet, immediately grow it by like three on the next turn, right? Wouldn't that be too much? Maybe two. Yeah, you, t- you tell me. I, don't, I mean, is that actually better than Ragavan? It's unclear. <laughs> oh, well, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it would become a very impressive combat creature, and I think that's not quite... Like, compare the, the one in a white 2-1 with lifelink. It's like a draft common from the current set. Do you know this card? No. <laughs> I don't look at a lot of draft commons when I'm brewing. It's called, like, Mandible Justiciar or something like that. Okay. That gets a plus one, plus one until end of turn whenever an artifact comes in. So it's like an ingenious smith, but it it itself is an artifact and the bonus is temporary. And that's like almost good enough. You don't have to boost things that many times. Okay. Well, good design then. Anyway, speaking of artifacts, so the winning card this time around with 39% support is Malkator Purity Overseer. David's favorite. Gosh, what are the chances that David's favorite won this one? <laughs> Dominion has uh, audited this vote. That everything is on the up and up. Do not ask any questions. We can't show our work, of course, but <laughs> we guarantee that there has been no chicanery. Little Blade Splicer throwback here. I mean, what's not to like about this card? It's price to move. Uh, it's... Potentially good in both formats. You know, I've got some ideas already for modern, and we're going to talk about all of this on our Friday show. We're going to take our first crack at Malkator Purity Overseer, and the Discord is already popping off. Just tons of deck lists getting thrown around, tons of ideas, tons of discussion. Absolutely. So, yeah, thank you to everyone for voting. Thank you for your ideas. Thank you for your enthusiasm. And we will see what we can do with Malkator. Like Dan says, we will talk about it later this week. But for right now, for today, the big news was bans in Legacy. Yeah, BNR update March 6th, 2023. Expressive Iteration and White Plume Adventurer are banned. White Plume Adventurer. Yeah, just your classic most powerful <laughs> cards ever printed in the most powerful format. A little four mana <laughs> white card. I think it's three, With a coming to play ability. Is it three? Three mana, it just gives you the initiative. It was an interesting announcement to glean tidbits from. So they talked about Legacy. They also did a little health check on the other formats. So they had a little blurb about Pioneer and Modern, how they, they think those are both in a healthy spot. I don't know if you agree with or disagree with that, David. I think for playability, Modern is in a very healthy spot, yes. And I think um, Pioneers as well. I have no opinions on standard or vintage. Okay. So steady as she goes in modern and pioneer, you were not swayed by the car needs to go. Fable needs to go. No, the, the arguments are banning something in pioneer are honestly embarrassing. Like anytime I see someone say that, I'm just like, wow, you're just like no idea what's going on around you. <laughs> it's like someone like you're playing basketball and you hit a three point and someone's like, I can't believe a three point line exists. Like you get three points for shooting it from out there. Like what kind of game are we playing? Just like 
Yeah, this is just how it is, man. <laughs> it's a game of emotions, David. I mean, it's a human game. I think that we have to accept that now. If we've stuck with the game this long, it's because we identify with it. So if it makes us feel bad, that's a legitimate reason to complain. Sweet. Well, I love rubbing it in. <laughs> <laughs> Three-pointer swish in your face. If anyone wants a card that I'm playing with banned, please complain about it in the chat. And I'll just be like, oh, man, I hope I draw another Karn, <laughs> the whatever. <laughs> yeah, Atraxa was not banned yet, despite that person who was salting off at me a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Atraxa was sure to be banned. Yeah, you dodged the 5-0. Classic Dan threw a match away just so mm. Atraxa wouldn't get banned. So mm. he just he showed the heart of a champion. <laughs> So just briefly about Legacy, what I did find interesting was, well, okay, I have no opinion about the initiative or the Undercity or anything like that, but expressive iteration. They said that Delver and Mono White Initiative are the top two decks. They are kind of holding each other in check and also simultaneously suppressing the rest of the field, so they wanted to take a card from each. How many times have they taken a card from, is it Delver? <laughs> this is like the eighth or ninth card they've taken away from Delver? Yeah. They kind of double down on some of their old principles. They're, they're not going to go after the core of the deck. Like, they're not going to target Delver itself. They're not going to target Days, although there are many good arguments to do so. And Brainstorm is untouchable. So they're taking out Expressive Iteration. They, they mentioned also new tools like uh, Murktide Regent, for example. But they say, and I'm quoting from the article here, that our hope is that by removing Expressive Iteration, we will reinforce Delver's historical strengths namely efficient one-for-one -one exchanges, and weaknesses, namely a lack of sources of card quantity, in a way that leaves a deck more vulnerable in the metagame. They say that with expressive iteration, Delver can just adapt too easily to anything that's happening in the format. And what this reminded me of was, you know, some of our occasional discussions about Pioneer and like the state of it in Pioneer, where last week I was testing Pioneer, I ended up playing it Phoenix in an RCQ, and it was my first time really playing it as a deck since the expressive iteration ban in Pioneer, you really feel it. Like it's exactly what they're saying here in this announcement. It's not that I can't find card draw spells to replace the iteration. It's just that the iteration covers over all of your, you know, linear bullshit that you're trying to do. <laughs> like if you pick one access to do really well, like I'm gonna do Arclight Phoenix really well, that can be targeted. That can be exploited. They can shut it down. Expressive iteration was just so blanket strong that it would just pull you through any situation like that it was like i don't really care how you choose to interact with me because i have expressive iteration in my deck i'm just going to pull ahead normally through the course of the game and it was i think the most important card more important than treasure cruise which is a card that can be exploited iteration cannot be exploited it's just like too robust of a card yeah I don't know that I 100% agree. I think it would actually, I mean, I, I understand why they left Treasure Cruise around. It would have been interesting if they had banned T Cruise and left the iteration. I, I don't know that Phoenix would be worse or better. I think the non Phoenix decks that you like to play would be much better. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's, I, I wish they had kind of done that. I understand they want to leave the Delve cards, fair enough. But um, I think iteration was actually useful for all the like four color nonsense lists where you had to play like 26 or 27 lands and you, those basically don't exist anymore. So that that's like us, you know, we're mm. talking about, uh, you know, a, a very corner case instance, but it, it would have been interesting. It is cool. The treasure cruise is to like, still get to play it in like one random format. So uh, th that's fine. Yeah. 
as they said, Pioneer is healthy, so everything is well. <laughs> All is as it, it should it. be. <laughs> exactly. So after this announcement came out today, I just saw on, uh, I think, on Fireshoes' <laughs> Twitter feed that they also just previewed two new initiative cards that are coming in the next supplemental set. <laughs> so the Undercity continues, although these are not white. They were in different colors. But yeah, I mean, Watsy absolutely hates legacy players and is just trying to steal money from them. So you can choose to let Watsy soak you or not. That's your business. I, <laughs> some, some people have an exploitation kick. That's, that's totally cool. But man, they hate legacy players. They just hate them. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we printed this thing that isn't even that good in Commander and uh, it's insane in Legacy and we're just going to blow up the format. And then right before a bunch of legacy tournaments, we're just going to ban it with no notice. Like, okay, fine, whatever. You're welcome. It's banned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shake our hand. Excellent work all the way around. But I think these actually have been well received from at least the reactions I saw. Yeah, I mean the sense the sense I got is everybody hated White Plume Adventure and they were willing to give up iteration if it meant that this terrible <laughs> card left the format. Like, all right, I you know, like you could convince me one way or the other on iteration, but if that's the price of uh, admission to get this random card with no history, no whatever, it's just <laughs> The stupid mechanic, you have to bring the freaking dungeon to every legacy game for the rest of your life. <laughs> All right. So that's legacy and a little bit of pioneer. Gonna shift gears now, and I will tell you a little bit about my preparation in modern, because I played an RCQ over the weekend and I actually spent a good amount of time this week just trying to get back on my feet, get my sea legs under me, and try to figure out which of my modern decks was best position to compete in the current metagame. So there's three decks that I actually worked on, and I kind of want to tell you a little bit about my testing process, my deck selection process. The first one was Sultai Crabvine, and I've talked about this before, is kind of my fallback deck. It's not as good now as it used to be, and I was not sure if that was because the metagame had shifted or because maybe I needed to improve my build. So what I decided to do was, first off, identified, okay, there's four flex slots in the main deck. The cards you need to have, you know, you need your Hesion Crabs, you need your Otherworldly Gaze, you need your Venge Vines, your Creeping Shills, and your stuff that comes back from the graveyard. So that's Nark Amoebas, Prize Amalgams, you need Switcher Supplier. When you add it all up, you have four open slots. And there's about 30 cards that you can put into those slots, maybe 20. Um, I stretch it. I, I was pretty generous with the cards I tested this week. <laughs> <laughs> And I figured the best thing to do would just be to have like open tryouts, you know, just jam a bunch of leagues, put different cards in and just see what happens. Well, I don't know if this is the best way. Do you think this is like a useful testing method or is this just a waste of time? Um, it's so hard to say. I, I guess it's more useful in this style of deck because you see so much of your deck see in the sense mm -hmm. of you put it into a zone where it's face up in some <laughs> capacity uh, in classic Dan Trever style. So I think it's more useful for this kind of deck because you do end up seeing, you know, I don't know, what do you think you flip over 30 cards or something in an average game? I think so, yeah. Well, and you can just compare and contrast, right? Like, all right, in this instance, do what I wish it was X or Y and Z. I mean, that you can just kind of do that mental calculus a lot more. There would often be a case where, like, I'd be trying to play some deck uh, that we were you know, I proposed and then I was just going to replace one card with another just because I couldn't like afford the rental. And then be like, all right, mental note, like whenever I see this card, mm -hmm. it could be, you know, a hearse or it could be a, the Soul Guide Lantern. And then I just never see either of them and it's just like, oh, I'm dead. It doesn't, you know. <laughs> but, you know, because you only see like whatever, 12 cards or something in, in some really fast games. 
Yeah, that's an interesting technique to kind of just like mentally put a sticker on that car. Like this is the, the slot that I'm testing. And sometimes it's right. just like an extra, like the second basic land or something like that. I don't know if that like leads you down to like putting too much emphasis on a small sample size because that specific card, you know, may or may not come up. And then if it comes up, you're like, oh, this is my decisions are paying off. Maybe it's better just theorize it because we don't actually play enough games to get meaningful data on this. Well, some data is not necessarily worse than no data. Yeah. And it means that it's a yes and, right? I mean, you, you, you've already theory crafted because you, that's how you decided on mm. these cards to test. True. So now we're actually running the, you know, like you say, a limited but non-zero number of experiments. So basically the cards I wanted to try fall into two categories. The first category is stuff that actually operates from the graveyard, right? Things that you can mill into, things that come back from the graveyard. These are synergistic cards, right? Cards that strengthen your main plan, that make your synergies more dense so that when you mulligan for your Heatron Crab and slam it and mill six off that fetch land, you're, you're more likely to hit something useful. This includes like the fourth Norcambibo, the fourth Gravecrawler, extra copies of Rotting Rats. Um, I consider like the first three Norcambibos and the first two or three Gravecrawlers to be musts and maybe two Rotting Rats. I, I would say those are, you have to have those and then you can add more if you want. So those are candidates for the flex slots. Uh, you could try Blood Gas there, Silver Smoke Ghoul if you like, although that only comes back from Creeping Chill and Crabvine does not see as much of the deck as Dredge does. Um, but I was actually interested in some of the stuff I hadn't really tried before. So Baithook Angler is a random draft common. It just has Disturb. It's a 2-1 blue creature, but it has Disturb. So you can cast it as a 1-2 flyer from the graveyard. And importantly, that, that is an actual casting. So that counts as one creature toward your Vengevine, uh, similarly to the way that Gravecrawler is cast from the graveyard. It's not a zombie, but uh, it actually doesn't require anything in play. Whereas with Gravecrawler, like if if my board is empty and I draw like a, a Merfolk Secret Keeper for the turn to mill four cards, I kind of know I'm not getting the Vengevine back, right? Because there's no way for me to get a zombie back. But a bait hook angler, you, you actually can get there from almost an empty board. So I was very keen to see how this one performed. Um, there's a couple of cards that work similarly. There's Scav Ruinator and Hakon Stromgold Scourge. These are both cards that can be cast from the graveyard, so that's one card. And they actually have the zombie type, so they can actually allow you to bring the Gravecrawler back just from the Scab Ruinator or the Hakon. So you could theoretically just have a Hedron Crab and nothing else, mill a bunch of cards, hit your Scab Ruinator, hit some Vengevines, hit a Gravecrawler, and just from that alone you would, you would bring all the Vengevines back. And we could consider cards like Dredge, anything with Dredge. Golgari Thug is interesting because it's just a cheap, you know, I can draw a creature for the turn, mill four cards while doing so. I've tried Dream Twist in the past. Uh, some people have tried cards like Haunted Dead or Stitchwing Scab. So those are the main options for like cards that work in the graveyard. If you want to just lean in even harder to the graveyard angle, you can use your flex slots on these. And of these, I think Baithook Angler is the one that impressed me the most. <laughs> that was what I had to look up. I saw it in your list. I was like, what the hell is that card? I've never seen it before in my life. <laughs> I mean, right away, it like won me a game that I otherwise would have lost. And there were like two more games where even though I didn't hit it, like I was milling for it, I, I was in a situation where I realized that I'm going to lose unless I can mill the Baithook Angler in the next six to ten cards. And I didn't. <laughs> but like the fact that it was there was actually comforting. 
So yeah, maybe I should even try two copies. I was I was pleasantly surprised by that card. The second category of cards you might put in your flex slots is cards that don't work from the graveyard, right? So when you mill them, you just sort of look sad as they're they're dead, they're not coming back. These are the cards that set up your self-mill engine, right? So a card like Glimpse the Unthinkable, for example. Right? If you draw it, great, you can mill 10 cards, but when you mill it, it doesn't do anything for you. And this might include, you know, additional threats. So Gurmag Angler is a nice one. You know, it's a zombie, it's beefy, uh, it's a creature. Extra self-mill. So I consider maybe three Merfolk Secret Keepers to be a must, but you could play a fourth copy. Um, so that would be another flex slot. Memory Sluice. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Slice? Memory Slice? Sluice? I think it's just Sluice. Sluice. <laughs> okay. a, a Sluice. A memory Sluice. This used to be in the deck before Otherworldly Gaze was printed. And I think it was maybe cut prematurely because it's actually better than Glimpse the Unthinkable. It's basically it mills four cards and you can conspire to have it mill eight cards. You can just tap two untap creatures uh, while you cast it to get two of the effect. And just being one mana, it makes it so much better than Glimpse the Unthinkable. I was actually pretty impressed with this card as well. So I think maybe that's another one that we should take a second look at. Urborg Lurgoyf is one that was getting some buzz. Uh, I was diving into the crab vine community and seeing what people were talking about. Uh, Urborg Lurgoyf has gotten a lot of attention lately. This is a rare from something Dominaria. Does that sound right? Uh, I looked it up. I don't know. Two sets ago, I want to say. Dominaria United. It has Kicker. It's kind of like a, a Boneyard Worm, but you can kick it once or twice, and each time you kick it, it mills three cards when it comes into play. So it's just like a big, big creature. The idea here being that if you're low on resources and you just happen to draw this, you can kick it once or twice, and it's almost like card advantage, right? It, you can mill three or six and kind of get yourself restarted again. That one I kind of hated. Like I put that in and it was awful. It was so bad in this deck. Um, that's yeah. <laughs> like, all right, I'm going to keep my own counsel about these cards. I'm not going to listen to the crab mind discord on all of these things, but uh, yeah, it was pretty bad. And a kind of a surprising one that I want to talk to you a little bit more about is a little one drop called larder zombie. Do you know this card, David? I only know it because, you know, people don't realize I get this excited text from Dan, like, you know, we should really be investigating Larder Zombie. I'm like, what the hell is this card? I have no idea what it is. So I'm like, knowing Dan, it's probably like a cheap common from some <laughs> random set that moves cards from a zone to another. And this did not disappoint. <laughs> yes, correct. It is one blue for a 1-3 Defender Zombie. Tap three untapped creatures you control. Look at the top card of your library. You may put it in your graveyard. Now, that has been eroded to surveil. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so this, this, is a, this is a common from <laughs> Midnight Hunt. And uh, yeah, you said it really impressed you. It does what this deck wants, right? So Crabline is interested in very cheap creatures, preferably zombies. <laughs> surveil is very good, as we've seen from other worldly gaze. It just so happens that when you're doing your thing, you have all these creatures just sort of sitting around doing nothing. Like the Hedron Crab does not participate in combat, right? He's a pacifist. He just, he observes, <laughs> he mills, he doesn't fight. Uh, Narcomibas, when they come in, they're summoning six, so they're just sort of sitting around. And the same with Grave Crawlers, you know, they, they can't block and often they can't even attack profitably. So you, they just sort of sit there and you wait to kill them with Creeping Shells and Venge Vines, or you wait until you hit Wonder. 
So there's actually a lot of opportunity to just like turn those bystanders into something meaningful and the larder zombie does that very easily. And so when I put this in my deck, I actually tried two copies because I really wanted to see like how does it perform. It was not a problem at all to activate it. Every time I drew it, I had opportunities to activate it once, sometimes twice per turn. The only thing that was holding it back was that the effect of surveilling one was just like slightly too small for like the, the brutality of modern. But it made me curious if, you know, to the extent that there is a dread shell in Pioneer, like I wonder if there's something there with larger zombie, because you, you can get Norcamibus from it. You're gonna have Merfolk Secret Keeper, perhaps, and again these cards just sit around. You could build a surveil deck, you have consider, you have otherworldly gaze, and there's an enchantment that actually turns every surveil into a surveil three, basically. It's called enhanced surveillance. Yeah, and you've been itching to uh, do an <laughs> all-in on Surveil in Pioneer for a while. I, I get the, uh, yeah, we should re really maybe look into going uh, all-in on Surveil. <laughs> so this is the card, maybe you didn't, did you realize this card existed this whole time? Or did you just like scroll for anything that said Graveyard in one mana draft commons? Or I had liked it in draft, but okay. I kind of forgot about it. And it just didn't occur to me that you could actually activate this in Constructed. Because it seems like it's meant for board stalls and limited. You don't think of Constructed as a format where you have three creatures who don't need to attack. But actually, it does kind of work out that way with these, these cards that just sort of drift out of the graveyard and into the battlefield. So yeah, at some point, if someone could nominate Larder Zombie for our next uh, <laughs> monthly... Exactly. It works in both formats, which is good. Yep, there you go. <laughs> Dan would be forever grateful. Maybe his wife, <laughs> if she's listening... If you want to give your husband a nice present, little larder zombie. <laughs> All right, so those are the two categories of cards you can put in the flex slots. And after playing a bunch of leagues with various configurations, the conclusion I drew was that the category one cards are just worth so much more than the category two cards. Because, you know, we're, we're milling half the deck every game. The cards that don't operate from the graveyard you will see many times that they just get milled and do nothing. And maybe once or twice you'll actually draw them and then you can evaluate what they do. But every time you mill them, you know that's a card that could have been an extra Narcomiba. It could have been an extra Gravecrawler. It could have improved your consistency. That's game one where it's kind of just like a, line a linear race. And then when you go to the sideboard games, the flex thoughts, doesn't matter what they are, they all get sided out. Like whatever they were, they're getting sided out because you need interaction for the post-board games. So... I just kind of left all of it feeling like whatever I put in the flex slots has to work from the graveyard. Otherwise it's just not going to be worth as much and then it's going to get cited out. So I'll never know what the, the extra glimpse, the unthinkable could have done for my main deck. So I think that to your point about whether this is a good style in testing, Dan, I think the overarching result that you got is like a super productive result of testing that the main thing you wanted is value from all your cards, especially game one. Those are the games you need to be winning mm. because you're the linear deck that has a bunch of silver bullets that don't beat you, but make it very difficult for you to win. So the theory is your opponent is coming equipped to play, you know, you don't have to pay mana for a lot of stuff <laughs> in modern, but they're still trying to play spells from their hand sure. and you're not really into doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was a useful conclusion. I don't know if that's correct or not, because what it means is that you're, you're left with a deck that just doesn't operate under graveyard hate. And this gets to the third question was, okay, what's the right sideboard configuration? And, and here I also tested a bunch of different things. I wasn't winning that much. Like the reason I did not actually play this deck, Crabbine, in the RCQ was that my win rate was 
like much lower than it has been in the past, much lower than I consider acceptable. There's just too much graveyard hate in the format, and it's too varied. You know, between Unlicensed Hearst, between Dothy Voidwalker, and Leyland in the Void, like Rakdos Scam, the, the Rakdos mid-range deck with Undying cards, plays both of those. It plays the Voidwalker main, and then it also brings in Leyland in the Void. So there's just like too much going on. You know, some people are playing Rest in Peace. Some people are playing Blood Moon, which also such you, such you down. So there's just like... Endurance <laughs> also. Yeah, include one random MH2 card in there. Like Endurance slows you down. I've always known that. But like Yogmoth also plays Scavenging Ooze, which you'll never beat. Like you just cannot compete with the Scavenging Ooze. So... I found that like the guessing game of like making sure I have, you know, exactly spell pierce because I know they're going to play a spell or like a nature's claim because I need to hit the Leyland of the Void, but that misses on the scavengers and that misses on the Voidwalker. Prismatic Ending is a card that Anthony Menino, who kind of introduced me to this this deck, like he really advocated Prismatic Ending because he, he felt like it can hit anything, but it actually can't hit everything, right? Like it's going to take a while for a Prismatic Ending to get you out of a Leyland of the Void lock. If at all. I mean, it's very easy for you to mill over <laughs> exactly one, your one white land or something. Exactly. So we tried Brazen Borrower as like a catch-all that, you know, it just buys a little bit of time. And what I ended up settling on was actually, I mean, it's kind of awkward, but I'm splashing Leyland Binding now in the sideboard. Uh, so that's your fourth color, and you have to add a Hello Fountain to the sideboard for this. Um, I tried it with a Triome. The Triome was terrible, so it's it's back to Hello Fountain. You're going to pay two for your Leyline Binding, and it's not good per se, but it it removes that element of the guessing game, right? This works against everything except Blood Moon. So at least you know that you have something to draw to for whatever they bring against you. All right, so you did all this work. You figured out your cyborg plan, and your conclusion after all that, though, was that this deck just didn't win enough, even with all the TLC you're giving it. Yeah, I didn't have enough agency over how much graveyard hate my opponent brought, and when they started the game on graveyard hate, like, I, there's just not enough ways to like guarantee that you'll find your graveyard hate removal in time. So, yeah, the, the win rate was low. <laughs> um, so I'm off that one for now. But we'll see. I think I have a good build. I'll post it in the in the show notes. But yeah, you need the amount of graveyard hate to decrease. All right. So we need the graveyard hate to decrease. So we don't abandon <laughs> Vengevine. We still have we're playing. We're going to at least try to play some Vengevine. But <laughs> you wanted a deck that wasn't as dependent on the graveyard. That was your goal, right? Yeah. And that's like, that's the holy grail of graveyard decks, right? Something that can still win even when you're under a Leyland of the Void. And it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. But in the Crabvine Discord, in the uh, Hollow One, Vengevine, uh, what do they call it? Bridgevine? Hollowvine, sorry. In the Hollowvine Discord, they were very excited about a new build from a YouTuber named Dakfaden07, who had posted a couple of 5-0-10-0 leagues, and another person had picked up the list and also went 5 0 it seemed like the deck was suddenly broken in a way that it hadn't been before. By the deck, I'm talking about like basically teamer crab vine. It's mostly mono red. You're splashing blue just for featuring crabs. The green is just the venge vine. And what you're trying to do is mill yourself as much as you can with the hedron crab to find Oxvagonus. Oxvagonus, because it escapes, does count as a cast trigger. 
not only does it contribute to your Avenge Vine, it clears out your hands. So it discards your whole hand, any Avenge Vine stuck on the hand, go to the graveyard, any blazing root walls in your hand get cast for free, which becomes the second card for the Avenge Vine. It's just like a beautiful engine. Like with a crab and fetch lands, this configuration can just overwhelm the opponent just with a one Hedron Crab because all you need is that Ox Avenge Vine root walla engine. You surround it with other stuff like Insolent and Unite is sometimes played. This build that Dakfaden07 was promoting used the Hollow One engine, so that means four Hollow Ones, four Burning Inquiries, and three Goblin Lures, kind of the random discard. And the new card that was supposed to bring it all together is Urborg Lurgoyf, a card that I said I hated when I was testing the Sultai deck, but maybe it'll be a little bit better here. Its role is a little bit different because this deck does not play Otherworldly Gaze, so there's actually not going to be like as many things to guarantee spending mana on every turn. Like you might just run out of cards in your hand if you spin with Burning Inquiry a couple times and don't hit an Ox early enough. So here, playing all four copies of Urborg Lurgoyf, I was actually very happy with the card. It did what was advertised. It was a big beater early, and then later in the game, in like in an attrition game, I could draw it and kind of reload. It, it got me most of the way towards an ox. So it was much more impressive in this build, which is kind of surprising, like how, how differently it played. Yeah, and you even have one black land in here. Yes, so you can fully kick it in uh, assuming they haven't disrupted your mana at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you'll be disrupting your own mana <laughs> with all the random discard <laughs> and self-mill. And yeah, I mean, the decks, like, they seem similar. Like, they're both Crab Vengevine decks, but they play out pretty differently. The Saltai version, you're playing Creeping Show, so you kind of start at 30 and they start at 10. This deck, I mean, Dak Faden wanted to play Street Race, so he was playing 18 land or 17 land and 4 Street Race. I cut those. I wish I wanted to play 20 land, but I mean, you have to shock fetch every turn for the first four turns of the game. Plus, you're playing street race, so you kind of start at six every game. <laughs> and you don't have... But in exchange for that, you know, you have this overwhelming offense when you're when you're unchecked. And you have the ability to just kind of cheese people out with hollow ones. Like, every once in a while, you'll just sort of spin into the perfect hollow one sequence. And then you can make a YouTube video about it and get everyone excited for it. So... You know, I've I played plenty of this deck before. I went in with eyes wide open. I was not expecting this deck to be broken or anything like that. And I watched Deck Fadian's videos very carefully because, <laughs> you know, he was kind enough to upload the games. And yeah, the common theme was the reason that he was winning by so much was that his graveyard was mostly not attacked. Like the graveyard was unmolested. He had full access to it. Nobody ever flashed in Endurance to shrink his Urborg Lorgoyf to zero, which happened to me many times when I was playing this. <laughs> <laughs> No Dalty Voidwalkers or Leyline of the Voids were shutting him down. So the thing is, like, we, we want the Hollow One engine to be that second angle, but it's just it's just not reliable. Like, and granted, I, I cut the street race, so like maybe I didn't get them as often as I could have, but even in the videos of Dak Faden, he didn't really get the street race. I think maybe once he used Street Wraith to get a Hollow One in play. But for the most part, the Street Wraith was just like I lose two life. <laughs> It makes your Urborg Lorgoyf slightly bigger. It pumps your Flame Blade Adept by one. It gets you one closer to Ox. So it's not useless, but this idea that you're going to like turn one, cycle two Street Race, and play a Hollow One, that's it's not very likely. So your takeaway was that this list doesn't even have as much, or maybe or maybe has equal cheese ability sort of in game one. But it doesn't actually solve the real problem, which is if there's graveyard hate, the deck does not execute its game plan very well at all. 
Yeah, that's my assessment. And I'm sure that some people would disagree with that. Which do you think is the better game one deck? Like, do you think that the Sultai Crabvine list is actually better in the sense of maybe is a little, little more unfair? Or do you think they're equally unfair? Or I think Sultai is a better game one deck. But, I mean, it's more consistent in the sense that you're actually mulliganing a lot in the Sultai deck. Whereas with this deck, you don't really mulligan unless you don't have lands. Like, there, there's no benefit to mulliganing. Like, because you're going to be doing a random draw four, discard three, <laughs> right? <laughs> I feel like the inconsistency comes entirely from that burning inquiry line. Like you could just win the game on turn two with this deck or not, you know, and then like, what does a burning inquiry do for your opponent? Does it mess up their plan or does it spin them into what they need? Does it, does it discard their archons for them to persist them back? The whole range of possibilities is on the table. And I think anyone who's played hollow one burning inquiry knows that you can't just, you know, say, okay, this is going to work every time. It's not going to work every time. (laughs) 40% 40% of the time it works every time though. Yeah. So for me, this is like not quite there. So the point of divergence was, okay, I accept the Urborg Lorgoif. Dak Faden said that cutting the Underworld Cookbook and cutting Asmo from the deck really improved the aggressiveness. Like it made him not have to worry about sequencing the discards. You know, he just cycles the Street Wraith as soon as he wants to because um, you're not, you know, worried about getting an Asmo stuck in your hand. So he felt like cutting those to focus on, you know, Flame Blade Adepts and Urborg Lurgoifs really improved the aggressive plan of the deck uh, and contributed to his back-to-back 5-0s. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I played two leagues and the Graveyard Hate really stunted me a lot and I kind of felt like the Hollow One was the problem. The Hollow One did not win me those games when I was under Graveyard Hate and I almost felt like Asmo and Cookbook could have won those games if I had paired them with Urza's Saga which actually is something I have not seen tried in a graveyard deck before. And I think that that, that might be the way forward. Like an Urza Saga plus a cookbook plus an Asmo can beat a Leyland of the Void by itself. Like you just make constructs and win. And you typically would not put an Urza Saga into a Vengevine deck, but like maybe you should. Although like you're saying, your crack fetch shocking every turn and now you're proposing adding four colorless land. So kind of something has to give at that point. I kind of want to put them in the sideboard. Like, is that is that crazy? Like, I just want to side in four Urza Sagas and side out four Crabs. I mean, honestly, the fact that there's, like, multiple discords for, like, Vengevine with these narrow niche various builds <laughs> is, like, me observing, like, you know, Amazon tribes that have never seen planes before. I'm just, like, observing their uh, behaviors, uh, learning about their uh, complex uh, moral structure and everything. Like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> They're arguing about various... 12 pick commons <laughs> from uh, five or six sets ago and getting really mad that someone isn't giving this common uh, a run over that common. Uh, looks like the Holovine players have begun their war dance. <laughs> we see them donning the ceremonial costumes. <laughs> Which wildly unplayable one mana card are they going to insist uh, breaks this format wide open? Somehow they 5-0 all the time. I just, it, I just find the whole thing to be fascinating. <laughs> Well, I mean, the solution is to give them an iPhone, which is what I'm saying with Urza Saga. <laughs> you, know? you, yes. you waltz into the village and just be like, hey, I've got Furies and Urza Sagas. Like, let's put these into the deck and see what happens. Yeah. Can't, uh, can't be that wrong. Exactly. 
I do love a sideboard juke, so I'm inclined to jump on the bandwagon uh, because the deck moves towards like a deck I understand where we like cast spells for mana, then we like attack and normally we interact with our opponent's plan. That's where my speed, you know, I have a smooth, simple brain, you know. <laughs> well, if that's the case, David, then you will love the third deck, which is the one that I actually ended up playing in the RCQ. Yeah, we went from the most unfair deck that's not trying to play magic at all to the deck that's just playing cards <laughs> for exactly mana, <laughs> never cheating anything. Colorless Eldrazi Stompy. This deck is back from the dead. Were you there for Eldrazi Winter, David? Were you playing modern at this time? We were playing modern at this time. Our, <laughs> you guys were jamming Niv Mizzet and all these. Uh, the RCQs did not exist at the time, but. It's like, oh, what if we put one more BTL <laughs> hit in there? Yeah, it's not going to work. But I mean, like, proper Eldrazi Winter, like 2016. Oh, oh when it was broken. Yeah, I, no, no, I, no. I yeah that, that predates. Okay. I, I, of course, you and I were talking, and we were interested in Modern, but I was not playing Modern at that time. So I realized that that was seven years ago, which is kind of shocking. There's like an entire generation of Modern players who just weren't really there for it, have heard about it, maybe or maybe not. Didn't get to live it firsthand, but this this deck is the closest you can come to playing Eldrazi Winter in 2023. It's not over unless we say it's over. What is the deck? Well, it's very, very simple. It is all the cheap colorless Eldrazi, and I, I do mean literally all of them. Like, there are only six of them, and we're playing all of them, four copies. Four Chalice of the Void, four Serum Powder, and four Dismember. And that's it. 24 lands... All this deck does, like, of those Eldrazi creatures, 24 of those creatures, their only job is to attack and block. Thought Not Seer is the only one that has any other ability, you know, that can Thought Seize and be a 4-4. But the rest of them, Reality Smasher, Eldrazi Mimic, Matter Reshaper, Endless One, uh, Eternal Scourge, you know, they have text, but at the end of the day, you play them and then all they do is attack and block. On top of that, you know, our broken MH2 card because every deck has to have one, is, is a Mishra's Factory. <laughs> That's the best you can do for Colorless, uh, your broken <laughs> MH2 card. Four Mishra's Factory, four Mutavolts, uh, two of the Blink Moth Nexus, so you get up to 10 creature lands. So the deck has like a very, very high density of creatures, and you just try to punch through. It turns out that a lot of decks just cannot withstand steady pressure from like slightly oversized creatures, slightly ahead of schedule. And then like a timely dismember or a timely thought not seer or a chalice. Yeah. And so I think the chalice angle is the important one, right? So you're fundamentally a chalice deck. You are even playing three gemstone caverns to chalice mm -hmm. on one, possibly on your first turn. Um, so, you know, I think chalice for one has to be good for this kind of deck to be good in general. Is that a fair statement or? Yeah, absolutely. And the matchups that I just like cannot solve are the matchups where Chalice has to get sideboarded out. Which is to say against all of the the good stuff piles, all of the four color Omnath decks. Even just like any green deck, like Yogmoth, like you, you don't want them to be playing creatures. If they're playing Solitude, if they're playing Leyline Binding, if they're playing Teferi Time Raveler, if they're playing Strength of Root Geist, you're in trouble. But if they're not, if they're in the red and blue space, like you're in good shape. Red, blue, and black, you're happy to play against those colors. But, man, the white removal is so insanely good against these cards. Although the one card it's not good against, Eternal Scourge, baby! <laughs> Unbeatable! 
Oh, you've exiled it with your enchantment, eh? I'll cast it from exile. <laughs> exactly. Have you ever had your opponent hit you with a Ragavan, flip an Eternal Scourge off your deck, realize that they can't cast it, and then you cast the Eternal Scourge on your turn? I haven't, but that sounds pretty <laughs> special. <laughs> so, I know this sounds kind of silly, but, I mean, the more I played this deck, the more I was winning. Like, this was by far the best of the three decks I played. I think when it was all said and done, uh, I had like a 64% win rate over almost 60 matches, like between paper and online. Like, I got, I 4 won a bunch of times. I almost 5 would Haven't 5 would yet. Took it to FNM a couple times. Went 3-1 and one both times. So, you know, I know this isn't going to be like a meta beating deck, but that wasn't really my goal. My goal was to just try to get this deck up to speed, try to figure out like whether it can still function what's the right build for it. That process was much simpler than the crab vine process because there really aren't any cards <laughs> to choose from. <laughs> I was going to say, because you have to play all the Eldrazi, your uh, your normal search for random draft chat doesn't work because <laughs> they don't they didn't print too many Eldrazi at common. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's just not very many colorless cards you can even consider putting in. So I thought that I had four flex slots, right? Like I initially did not have any copies of Endless One. I was trying out uh, Smuggler's Copter. I was trying out... Oh, Fleet Wheel Cruiser. <laughs> I even tried Karn, the Great Creator. These cards just like weren't as good as just having an Endless One. I just kept adding more and more copies of Endless One to the deck, and by the end, it was a four of, and I just like didn't side it out. Like I, I just leave that in all the time. <laughs> it's just good on every turn of the game. When I say good, I mean like an, it's an Isamaru on turn one. But that's good enough. I mean, the game ends with you attacking with a bunch of Mutavolts for three turns in a row, and eventually they end up at exactly zero life. So yeah, important to note, this is not Eldrazi Tron. Even when Eldrazi Tron was a deck, you often advocated this. You really like the serum powder package to kind of draw to your unfair hands. Mm -hmm. um, so this is not a deck that ever played uh, Warping Whale main, right? Like uh, Eldrazi Tron did. Um, it also never played Maze Mind Tome, right? That was, a, that was a card that Eldrazi Tron played. So this deck just, like you say, this deck is a beatdown deck. Um... And with a very specific interaction suite, basically. Yeah, and there just isn't that much to choose from. So when you go to the sideboard, what you find is that you have ley lines, and you're extremely good at mulliganing for ley lines. This deck, because of Serum Powder, is the best mulliganing deck I've, I've ever played. It mulligans even better and more frequently than Crabvine does. So if you want to start the game with a ley line on the void and play, you can. Ditto for, like, if the white ley line were better, which it's not that great right now, but if there were decks that just lost to the white ley line, you could, you could definitely have a, three of those and get them every game. But beyond that, the other options are not good. So, <laughs> you know, I put some Warping Whales in because they counter creativity, and, you know, they're just sort of useful. Ratchet Bomb is there because, you know, if, if a Urza Saga gets going on the other side, you're in trouble. But the sideboard isn't going to give you that much so I wouldn't expect this to like skyrocket up the tiers, but I think it's actually like a lot better than you might think at first glance. If this is a deck that you've played in the past, if you enjoy this style, it's actually viable now. 64% is not blowing anyone's socks off, but it's not nothing. And I took this to the event and it did well. I didn't make top eight. I got 11th place. I think I went four and two. But I had a lot of fun. You know, it's a very consistent at getting to do its thing. You start more than 60% of games with Eldrazi Temple on turn one because of the mulligan strategy. So, uh, yeah, if you enjoy casting Eldrazi, I highly recommend this deck. And I think I'll be putting together a write-up on it uh, pretty soon. 
Yeah, super cool. I mean, uh, it, was, it was really interesting to sort of see your journey to the <laughs> ultimate beatdowns, baby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like to share a little bit of just like how I think so that if at any point you're thinking of saying to me, oh, you know, Aimless is pretty good right now. Why don't you just play that? Like, do you know how I think? Like, I spent like two weeks trying to tune up these terrible tier two, tier three, tier four decks to get them to that coveted 50% win rate or 64% win rate in Magic Online leagues. Not saying you should take these and expect to win your next tournament, but you know, if this is part of your modern collection, if this is part of your deck repertoire, uh, I was encouraged by the results uh, for all of these decks, actually. And, you know, after Larder Zombie Month, we'll, you know, tune that one up a little bit and we'll be ready to roll. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enough of my nonsense. Uh, let's close things out by looking at other people's nonsense. Picks of the week. We each have one deck picked out. David, you're looking at Pioneer. What have you seen? Yeah, Pioneer. So people have been trying to play Tyvar and a bunch of them have been coming up with these Tyvar aristocrat style decks um most of them play collected company most of them play tyvar they play mana elves this deck caught my eye it's playing the full four lazotep reaper so for people who don't know what that card is uh speaking of <laughs> draft chaff two mana for a one two when it comes into play to mass ones so if you don't have a an army token you create one and um it puts a plus one plus one counter on this zero zero zombie army creature so it's a, it's a two mana that makes two mana creature that can be hit by collected company or bought back by Tyvar that um, is also hittable. And then it turns on your priest, basically. So these are all Priest of Forgotten Gods decks. And we identified early that Priest of Forgotten Gods is the kind of guard that gets really buffed up by Tyvar. The complaints we often had, uh, Dan and I echoed them both. This card just dies. This card does not have summoning sickness, so it's a bad top deck. It's not great on two. It just dies to stomp. Tyvar like fixes both of those things. If it gets it back, you can use it right away. You almost want them to kill it so you can immediately minus your Tyvar so you get uh, value out of it, right? You want your three mana planeswalker to draw a card as opposed to untapping, which isn't always useful. And then this deck is just like all in on the, the package. It has four Zillaport, Cutthroat, three Vran, Executioner, Thane. This is a card we kind of even talked about when it was spoiled, you know, it sucks. You only get to trigger it once, but that trigger's pretty good. That two life for you, two life for them. That is a whole shielded cycle, basically. Uh, if you get to trigger on your turn and on their turn. And they're even more all in with three Bastion of Remembrance. Um, it creates a 1-1 token, and then it, again, has a, a drain trigger every time a creature dies. And because of the card choices they made, they are playing Gigantha. And you do end up having a lot of mana often with these, you know, sometimes you're just tapping your priest to kill, you know, their creature and maybe draw a card. Sometimes you don't draw anything. You just play your land. You have two black floating. You just get the Gigantha to your hand. Um, so this is a very good deck for Gigantha uh, is, is what I kind of wanted to highlight. And picking your main deck cards and cyborg cards, of course, Gigantha should not exist. We don't need to get into that. To, to allow <laughs> you to continue to play Gigantha is, I think, a huge gain. Bastion of Remembrance. So under what circumstances would I actually put this card on my deck? It's like an unkillable blood artist, something like that, but it's not strong. It's not powerful. You know, I actually saw a lot of standard play when standard was very powerful. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's just they're all in on the on these triggers. And so once you start doing that, then Bastion is just another way to do it. It dodges Wrath of God. It dodges Anger of the Gods. You know, it dodges a lot of the common ways you typically hate these decks out. And just sticking around means that, especially because Tyvar also dodges most of those cards, um, all of a sudden you just have, you know, Tyvar pluses, the next turn it minuses and gets a creature, and all of a sudden that creature has haste, and and you're, you're just bashing and remembering them again. So I don't know if this is the right card or not, but this is the deck I saw that leaned most into it. Most decks are playing like Avran, Executioner Thane. And no bastions of remembrance. This deck is like we're all in. We got three brands. It's a two mana legend that you know. I mean, I thought it was okay. Dan thought it was you know maybe a little worse than that. I, I, we don't think of bastion as a playable card, and you know maybe this is it. This is a super aggressive version of this because it's it's almost all in on just going to town on your opponent's life and gaining life for yourself as well. Yeah, I, w- I would have thought that the meat hook massacre just made bastion of remembrance completely obsolete. But Meat Hook is not Gigantha eligible. And you don't really want to wipe away your own board if you don't have to. <laughs> I guess that's part of it. Uh, so maybe, yeah, maybe Meat Hook is just like not what the deck wants. And Bastion, by bringing along that extra body, giving you that companion just like does enough. And Priest is just really well positioned right now. If you think of like Channel Fireball's blue red list, a live Priest means they can't even combo you, right? You buy a whole extra turn. Hmm. They have one creature in play that you force them to sacrifice it. <laughs> uh, if they target a creature with their um, their tutor spell, then you know you kill one of them. They need to hit with both, so they have to target two artifacts. And if they don't have another creature, you stop them, do two damage, draw another card, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, just super cool. I I think people are going to keep experimenting with Tybar. I think it is maybe the second best three mana planeswalker in the format and so you know i think we're just going to see a lot of decks with this and you know one of the things that dan and i discovered during tyvar week is you kind of got to play two colors you end up getting a lot more value from your lands that way mm-hmm. playing the third color means you get to play better cards but if you don't draw the right cards at the right time you end up kind of being sol so i think we're going to see tyvar and black green lists uh in in pioneer and this is a list that really just leans into black green again the the mana allows them to play gigantha and um yeah it just seems like a super cool deck yeah absolutely glad to see tyvar doing well glad that i picked up my playset last week so i'm ready to jam tyvar <laughs> once we settle on a good list <laughs> all right dan you were looking at modern what did you find yeah, so the modern list that I want to talk about here comes from friend of the show, Lawson Zandy, who is Zanman, a sometimes streamer. He actually lives in Austin, so we've been hitting up some of the local tournament scenes together. And one thing that I mean, we noticed at this weekend, as I was trying to convince him to play the Colorless Eldrazi deck with me, was that Ghost Quarter, which I was playing four of in my deck, is actually pretty useful in the metagame right now. Not a lot of basics are being played in modern. Even against decks where you might not expect Ghost Quarter to like do anything, it turns out that Indomitable Creativity only plays one basic land in their entire deck. They play one mountain. So if they ever have the mountain in play, you can just stone rain their triumphs willy-nilly. Field of Ruin actually has a new printing called Demolition Field. Does that sound right, David? Yes. Yep. 
so you can play a bunch of copies of that. And I, I kept running into this mono black control deck in the leagues that was playing like Cabal Coffers and then all eight of the Field of Ruin effects. And it was giving me all kinds of fits, just like devastating my mana base. So between those observations, we were starting to feel like, you know, maybe, maybe there's something here. Like we just need to find a shell for them. And what Lawson came up with, like his mind works in beautiful ways. He brewed what he calls mono white Ponza. Inspired by some of the Shining Shoal Humans decks that we talked about last week that are kind of burst onto the scene in modern. But instead of playing like the random human suite of like, you know, you know get your Adeline, get your Luminic Luminarch Aspirate, etc. Lawson was thinking, all right, let's instead of focusing on human tribal, which is exploitable, let's just play kind of like a mid-range mana denial strategy. We're still going to play Shining Shoal and Solitudes. So Shining Shoal really likes to have Emerio's Call to pitch to it. Lawson figured out that instead of playing the White Chancellor, which is kind of only good on turn one and not that good, that he could instead play just some of the MDFCs. Like there's a eight mana Wrath that you can play as a land, or you just pitch it as an eight mana card to your Shining Shoal. So you have plenty of stuff to pitch to your Shining Shoal, and it just turns out that in, in a format where red is the best color in modern by far, having main deck Shining Shoal is, is just devastating. He even figured out that uh, Burnt and Forge Tenter, the humble little Kithkin wizard, is actually like really, really good right now. So he's actually playing three copies of Burnt and Forge Tenter in the main deck. You know, one of the ways that that humans deck can still be exploited is if they just have a Fury and you don't have your Shoal ready, you're toast. But a turn one Forge Tender stops an entire Fury. It blocks Ragavan forever. Like the, the red players just look and feel very foolish with a Burnt and Forge Tender in play. So you kind of got these techie choices. They kind of fill out the top of your curve, the free part of your curve and the cheap part of your curve. Uh, then you have your, your taxers, you have Esper Sentinel, you have some Thalias, and then Leon and Arbiter. Cat Jesus, your favorite, David. <laughs> Cat Jesus is back so that you can Ghost Quarter and Field of Ruin to your heart's content and just uh, completely shut down people's mana. He's even got two Sarah Paragons, which... Well, we think of that as like a four mana Lurus. Uh, it, it actually allows you to replay lands from the graveyard. So you kind of have like this pseudo Crucible of Worlds effect. And you can use Aether Vial to get all of this stuff online. So there's four Aether Vials. There's four Stoneforge Mystic. There's a couple of Archon of Emeria. There's some Extraction Specialist. And the Stoneforge package is, you know, Cauldra Complete. I think he was trying stuff like Lion Sash, Batter Skull, Shadow Spear. Uh, that's still up in the air. But. Um, just watching him play these leagues, I mean, he rattled off two five O's almost effortlessly, and the deck looked great. Yeah, the Shining Shoal tech is sort of the top end, and then like what you can put underneath that. And I agree, you know, the human shell didn't seem particularly strong. It's like, okay, the Shining Shoal is super techy, mm -hmm. but yeah, I love all these ways to rebuy uh, Leon and Arbiter, basically. <laughs> Because even if they kill it, right, like Extraction Specialist is so good and Stoneforge Mystic is a card that they're uh, priced into killing. Esper Sentinel, I mean, yeah, th this deck just seems re uh, really interesting to me. I, I, you know, won't claim to be an expert. Just the two equipment for Stoneforge Mystic seems weird to me, but uh, maybe that's the right number. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I mean, this is just first draft or second draft. I think there's definitely room to explore like i was i was advocating for uh what's that three two reconfigure it's like a three two flying for three and if you equip it for five you get a platinum yeah angel. it's a worship worship effect <laughs> yeah 
So I mean, the, the value of these is that because they're white, Stoneforge Mystic can go find them, and now you have like a white card in your hand to pitch to Solitude or pitch to Shining Shoal. Uh, and Lion Sash, obviously, obviously the same thing, if you want that. There's definitely like a lot of room to tinker in this space. You know, I wondered if the Ranger Captain of Eos might be good, because that gets you even more copies of Burnt and Forest Tender if you want it. It's a very, very interesting shell, very promising. Yeah, super cool. If you have Shining Shoals, like, somewhere in your collection, your bulk bin, just, like, find them, hoard them. I think this is, like, a, a modern staple that's been hiding in plain sight. I own a couple and have literally never played them. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's it's only unplayable, or it's only playable because Wizards, like, <laughs> you know, monetized modern, <laughs> so... It's like good against exclusively MH2 cards <laughs> or MH1. Fury, the six damage spell, Ragavan. It's just devastating on combat. I mean, I've seen people, you know, you lead on Esper Sentinel. They pay an extra mana for Ren and Six. Yeah. Or don't pay mana for Ren and Six. You gain a, a card. Then they minus to try to kill it. You shine control the damage back and then get to attack and kill it. It's just crazy. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, that I saw Lawson do that a couple times. <laughs> So it's like a called shot. He's like, he's like describing what they're going to do before it even happens. He's like, they're going to play Ren and Six here. They're going to give me the card. They're going to try to kill me as for Sentinel. I'm going to show it back at the Ren and Six. So at least for now, this is a way to attack the modern metagame. And yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah. Anything that punishes all these people just playing blue, red, etc. Red, black. Exactly. All right, so a little spice to round out uh, our little modern discussion today. I think that'll be it for today. We will be back later in the week to take our first crack at Melkator the Purity Overseer. So, David, I will talk to you again in just a few days. Yes, sounds good. Take care. All right, see you. Deck lists for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in next time for new brews with Melkator, Purity Overseer, plus testing results with L.S. Nord. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.